What's up, guys? Welcome back to the Quiet Part Loud podcast. You're listening to episode 131, and my guest today is a sports commentator. He is a presenter and announcer best known for his work as the lead play-by-play commentator and presenter for the UFC. He is also the co-host of Inside the Octagon with Dan Hardy. We had a great chat about his road to becoming the lead presenter for the UFC, and it was a really, really cool conversation. We got into how, you know, being there when Conor McGregor came on the scene and watching him rise to, you know, the stardom he has now. Uh, We also talked about family. We also talked about his favorite fighter, and we broke down a little bit of UFC 249 ahead of this weekend's event. Uh, John's a great guy, and it was uh, it, it was a really good conversation and a pleasure for me to sit down and talk to him. So I hope you guys enjoy the episode, and without further ado, please welcome John Gooden. Shut up and sit down. How are you? Doing okay. How are you? Yeah, good. Thanks for uh, thanks for sitting down with us. I'm uh, I'm uh, I'm I'm happy to sit down with you and talk, especially now we're leading up to this 2:49 madness. So uh, so it's really good to connect with you. Yeah, no, no. Thanks for having me on. How's this week been for you? Every week is pretty similar. Uh, yeah, I'm afraid but you shooting at least you're shooting inside the octagon this week. You shot that right. That's yeah. Yeah, we, we did a bit of work, which is always good to get some kind of normality in that sense. Um, yeah, but otherwise it's just, it's, it's, yeah, it's strange times. We have a two-year-old, so I know, it's, it's, yeah. it's juggling that side of things. And my wife, she's just been made redundant, but was working. Now she's trying to, you know, get another gig and because I haven't got an awful lot on. It's like this race between one of us to, to get a, a job to put food on the table and things like that so it's it's a bit chaotic uh, but it is good to finally have dialogue with the ufc with stuff coming up and to actually do something with dan so that yeah, is, yeah absolutely yeah, absolutely absolutely so um my wife is going through a very similar thing as well she runs her own business um down here in southeast london i don't know where you're located actually um john but we're down in greenwich and yeah okay, okay. hers is a person-to-person business so there's nothing going on. You know, I'm, I'm yeah, lucky yeah. that, you know, I have a nine to five that I can do remotely and that's keeping things taken over, but it's tough for everybody at the moment. Sure. Yeah. I know I'm not alone and um, we're, we're lucky in many respects, but yeah, it's just, it's just different, right? It's different. There are, there are things about this, which I'm quite used to because I said like the room that I'm in now is my, my sort of office, my research center. And I'm, <laughs> mostly hold up in here it's like revising for an exam when the event comes so i just sit down here chewing through tape and scripts and things like that and then i go back up to feed and water myself and then come back down again it's It's repeat for you know an extended period of time but i haven't jumped on a plane for a while which essentially i have to do that to go and earn a living nowadays so yeah that's that's a bit different but Again, you know, it could be worse. It could be, yeah, for sure. So what are you doing? Like, I know you're shooting the video. I saw some videos that you were shooting there uh, with the little one uh, yeah, to pass yeah. some of the time. I know you're quite an active guy as well 
are you are you getting are you getting out? Are you getting running in? How are you keeping how do you keeping active? How how are you keeping your mind and your body? Yeah. Well, I was I, I actually went for a run. When was it? Yesterday, day before. Yeah, yesterday, day before. That was the first run apparently in seven weeks. Wow. So I was tailing off my training coming up to the London event because I was mm. uh, typically I still train in uh, mostly just grappling stuff now. Okay. For fear of getting injured and stuff like that, I, I tend to and just workload. I don't I don't go into the gym as much. Sure. So so I tailed off there, and then we had the whole lockdown situation, and then I I feel like I I think my wife and I had uh, COVID nineteen. Is that um, right? Yeah, we didn't get any tests done just because it was at the time when it was well, you know, Could unless you, you need hospitalisation, then just just you know sit it out and work your way through it but it really knocked me for six and i still feel well i don't feel like my run was brilliant the other day so i think lung capacity was definitely affected for about a month um, i don't know what it was it might not even be the coronavirus it might have been something different but i have to say i'd be disappointed if it wasn't because you know if you feel like you're going to get the the antibody you go through something like that in these times you're like i hope it is that so i know we've gotten through it and maybe the the toddler had it as well my wife's had it and we can just crack on you can deal with it and then it's you know moving on yeah absolutely i think my wife had it um and there were a few days there where i didn't feel right myself but she was knocked for six for a good i'd say week and a half and right, right. Uh, and it really took her down but you know if it does what it says ipso facto i probably did as well but luckily maybe some of those symptoms didn't manifest yeah, yeah. as much you know but it, it was the same sort of thing you just got to kind of cobble through it see what you can do and and hopefully come out the other side and i think a lot of people are in that boat as well you know it's a a lot of uncertainties with this whole thing so it's yeah, um yeah. it's tough but i'm glad you're, i'm glad you're getting out at least doing something you know but uh how long ago was it when you had the symptoms to when you went for the run? Probably about five. I think it's been a, uh, it's been about a month. Really? Yeah. Good. Yeah. I was doing, I was doing a couple of things. So I've not in here now, but um, like just here next to me, I have a, like, I have a chin up bar and oh, nice. I had like a, the, the yoga ball. So I was doing some drills on the yoga ball. And I've got some kettlebells as well. So I was just doing some strength stuff, not, not massively uh, hard cardio bits and pieces. But again, just the timing was a part of it. We were going for walks, but yeah. I just didn't feel, I didn't feel like pushing myself. Again, because if it wasn't that, then you don't want your immunity to suffer. So you don't want to go out and wreck yourself going for runs. I know what I'm like as well. I'm so competitive with myself. I've got this certain run. I know the pace that I normally would go at. So I would probably end up, you know, going a little too hard. So yeah, pushing anyway, yourself yeah, down. Exactly. Yeah, for yeah, sure. So I just relaxed and thought about doing some other stuff and I'm okay. You know, I'm not yeah. putting on too much weight. I eat well. So well, you're a vegan, right? I read yeah, you're yeah. a vegan and, and are you training for a triathlon or you were training for a triathlon or you you've already completed one and you were training for another? So 2016 i did a season so um oh, wow. so my friend we did a triathlon together like a sprint triathlon in 2015 which okay. i enjoyed i know we did two actually i think we did two and i had like a 
just a standard bike and wasn't really into it too much but not all of my friends are in MMA yeah I have there are a lot of a lot of friends of mine that I used to play football with and now not all of those guys are playing football but my friend Jamie who I've you know been very close to over the years he's always been super fit and he was doing triathlon and it was good to connect with him again so we did a, these smaller triathlons and I the swim was gnarly, but everything else, I was like, okay, this, this is okay. And yeah. he actually signed me up for an Ironman. Like, over, when he told me as uh, at New Year, so I put wow. me down for an Ironman in June or July of that year. July, I think it was. Good Lord. So that gave me six months from, not, from doing two sprint triathlons, which is like a 5K run, a few lengths of a pool, or like a thousand meters swim or something. Now I'm doing an Ironman. So I did a bunch of stuff with him. Yeah, I did like a duathlon. Then actually a half Ironman was the second race of that season. Oh, wow. And then Olympic and sprints and that. And we got, we got ready and, and I managed to finish the Ironman in the July. Then the, if I'm honest, I didn't do a great deal on the, after that. And now I just tick over. Don't really do a lot of cycling. But I was doing a 24-hour endurance race in June for charity. And that was just a run. And where where, where was that? Was that up in the hills? Where was that? That was in Leeds. Okay. So when they do Leeds and Reading Festival, and mm -hmm. this kind of coincides with that. Okay. And sadly, obviously, because of the current conditions, it's not happening. Um, but I was training, and my times were getting good. I was feeling quite fit actually in in March, early March. So I was getting there. It's a shame because I I do feel like I want to do some like an ultra marathon something of that nature i felt like it was time to get back in and do some charity as well so but yeah that hasn't happened what's the duration of the long race that you were planning it was a 24 hour you said yeah but we were doing it in a relay so okay. we were still working out what we were going to do but essentially we were going to each run a marathon wow okay it, it was whether we did a marathon in one go or whether we did five miles and then handed over and then kept coming back to doing five miles. And just so relaying it over and over, yeah. 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 Okay. Yeah, okay. I was, thought you were stepping into Cam Haynes territory and, uh, you know, <laughs> would, doing I'd the love to do you a, I'd love to do a 100 miler. I, I think uh, like, I'd like to give that a go. Um, it takes an, an awful lot of commitment to get there. The one thing about a triathlon, like a swim is an hour. You know, yeah. it, you've got to cut off at about an hour and a half. So if you're in training, you'll, you'll manage to swim. Yeah. A hundred odd miles on the bike, you know, it, it's not going to, shouldn't kill you. Yes. But the run is always, is always hard. Because it's know? a marathon right not, at the end. Exactly that. So, um, yeah. Gnarly. You've got to be Gnarly. a good runner. Yeah. <laughs> You've got to be a good runner. So I'm looking forward to like getting back into some running. It's just difficult. I've, I'm really enjoying my martial arts journey and it gets in the way because yeah. of the injury stuff. Um, and you, you lean out. Like I lost eight kilos when I was, when I did the Ironman. Like that season. Yeah, so I went yeah. down to like 72 kilos. Oh, wow. So that makes that again, the strength side of things when you're trying to do jujitsu and it, they don't coincide brilliantly, not with my body type. If I was a bit bigger and more sturdy, maybe be okay, but not. Yeah, for sure. So you, so you're predominantly doing grappling now. Yeah. Nice. Nice. How long have you, I mean, you've always been into it. You've always been a fitness guy from what I've seen and from what I've read. 
but how long has the jujitsu journey been going on? Um, I, I think it was more sort of, it was really MMA focused and that was around okay. 2006. I started dabbling a little bit and then it was on and off. I've had a bunch of injuries. I blew my back out, which took me out for five years. So that, was a, that was a long time. I pretty much had to start again. Wow. Um, but what did you do there? It was just basically I was, uh, had I just come back from competing? I had a, I had a run of injuries from wrists. Sure. Bursitis in the knee, wrists, and then got a couple of amateur fights done. Spent a bit too much time out. Came back after a, um, a blood clot, actually, from Muay Thai in the back oh. of the leg. That was quite horrible. Jeez. And then I came back and I just, I, I rolled to pull guard uh, on, the, on someone. It wasn't his fault. It was a Sunday session. <laughs> no one was warming up particularly. And, and then that was in February, March time. And I struggled until the summer. And then I had a, a botched chiropractic treatment. And then I had like insane sciatica after that. And that just lasted for, yeah, as I say, about five years. Good Lord. I'm glad you're on the mend. I'm glad you're on the mend. It's always a journey, isn't it? Yeah. I'll never, it might never, my back will never be the same, but, uh, but I can still manage. Grateful for that. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So tell me about, cause you've, you've done the cage warriors. Obviously now you've been with the UFC for what, six years doing the, the play by play and the, and the, and the presentation work with there. What was that journey like? Because I saw some of the CV and some of the CV was, you know, uh, cage warriors and, and, and local kind of more local shows and things like that. Has this always been the journey? Because I also read that you're a qualified electrician. Yeah. Is that, was that a backup plan or was the original goal, was the original life direction something else? Yeah. You know, it's an interesting question and it's a timely one as well, because I spent some of this time in isolation thinking about the, the, my journey, my ambitions going forward and, and really how I've gotten to where I am. And I, I was asked to, to give a talk. Okay. And in that talk, we'll get to the answer in the end. Sorry. I, I, no, I'm take your time. I got, no, you're good. Thinking out loud here. And I used to talk about how my journey meandered. And I had gone from... Uh, having a degree working in the city of London and I really wanted to be a stockbroker but ended up working in in recruitment and not with like a not when a wide boy culture it was very consultative okay really great group of intelligent uh, people but it it sort of changed and it was around that time that I had really harbored intentions to be a tv presenter okay and and because my my university life was very different I didn't kind of go away I said I was in love at the time, so I stayed at home, and I never really had that student life. If you sure. know, like, I sort of had that when I joined the city because a lot of those guys and girls had just graduated and still had a lot of those trends, but now everyone had money. Of course. So we had a great time in the city, and uh, and I was you know out with everyone else and just having success with uh, with the ladies, if you will, and. It's just getting more and more confident in life and, and as an adult and as a man. And I just felt like I could do so many different things and that the presenting thing just was something that kept coming back to me. So essentially, I 
I left the city in pursuit of this dream, which was a bit mad when I, when I think back to it. But I ended up working for free in production roles and it never really happened to cut a long story short. And I ended up moving back home with my parents and moving back to the city. And my positivity was really sort of going down at this point. Right. And, um, and that city career just, just didn't really take off. I wasn't back. I went back to the place where I was before and I wasn't like the, um, not the start at the time when, when I was, when I left the city, I was in a really good place with the company that I was at. I was yes. like a rising star of their company, if you like. Oh, I get it. I'm in media nine to five, so I completely get it. Right. And now I've gone, I've gone back there and it was, some people didn't like the fact I'd gone and come back and it was complicated. And in the end, I, I ended up, I, I got fired. Really? And I, yeah, yeah I, I got fired from that job. And I then went back to, I went to join my dad's company. He was, he's got an electrical services business. And it was a sort of a romantic gesture of, you know, father, son, I'll take your business to the next level. And a lot of it, I think, was, was also down to my family being such hard workers and everyone kind of saying, you've never done a hard day's work in your life and I've had it easier than others. Plus, my dad wasn't around a great, like, a whole bunch when I was younger. So I thought maybe I didn't feel like I had that, that deep connection with him. There were a lot of different factors, I think. And, and anyway, I, I then joined with my dad and thought I was going to be in the office and help him yes. use my strategic knowledge that I had from university and developed in the city of London in the boardroom. And he's like, that's not happening. You're going to have to go to college, retrain and start as an apprentice. And, and I did. And I worked my way up to the point where we were growing the business together and I was bringing in lots of new ideas and directions and, and I enjoyed business. Yeah. Um, but I think deep down I'd, I'd had to, I had to bury these dreams that I had because something got in the way and said that I wasn't good enough or something of that nature. And it took me off of the path. Self-imposed or environmental? I think it was a little bit of didn't like being told um, no and I wasn't willing to make the sacrifice at the time. I'd gone from earning a handsome salary in the city to working for free, to then getting a job where I was working really hard, like 15K. Yeah. And I just, and I had to move home with mum and dad. And, and I just thought, this is a big gamble. And I was, also, I was also about, not the finer things in life, but my dad had worked really hard to provide a really nice life where we where we were living and, and nothing grand but comfortable comfortable and it succeeded immensely well from where he'd come from and i always felt like i had to do a little you bit gotta go to the next there. step right exactly and it and we're in like one of the most affluent areas of of hertfordshire so he's he's very successful in his own right right I, I don't know. I, I, for some reason, I'd lost sight of this uh, presenting dream and just, just threw it away. And then it came back around with mixed martial arts. Really? My coach put on a, yeah, my coach put on a show, a local show. And a, a reporter had come down and done a terrible job of reporting on the event. And I actually said to him, I, you didn't know me back then, but I really wanted to be a TV presenter back in the day. I could do that job. 
do a better job. And he said, well, I, I don't have any control over the network that sent that person down. He said, but what we could do with this some commentary. And it was oh, nice and that I'd rubbished years ago because when I was at the BBC, they were looking for sports commentators. They were doing like an apprenticeship scheme. Okay. And I wanted to be in front of the camera. I didn't feel like it was, it wasn't about glamour and being famous. I just felt like the role that I was cut out for was to deliver information in an entertaining or lighthearted or whatever format they required. Sure. And that's what I thought I wanted to be in it. And also when you consider football commentary, Olympics commentary, commentators are normally faceless. You yes. don't really know what they look like really true but in america in the u.s it's i think it's quite different because they oh, tend totally. to put the, those guys are on camera and, and certainly the ufc who have created the format of presentation essentially for mixed martial arts the the commentators open the show so that was something that we were all digesting in the mma community and and so i was going to get a bit of both and it grew from there i did um i always do this when i'm in these shots let me just grab this Go on. this that shelf behind me is like a shelf of memories but this right here is my first dictaphone and i did my first commentary gig on here continued continued to do it as well i don't know if people are, are just watching watching or just listening to this but no it's going to be recorded and audio as well well it's an old olympus uh digital voice recorder which is, is just big slightly bigger than a cigarette lighter and yeah, it was a one-man booth. I was doing a bunch of these gigs by myself, just with a, a set of earphones and a plug-in microphone. That was it. Oh, there you go. <laughs> my my journey's only just beginning, but I've been creeping my way up the the technology levels to to make it somewhat of a professional setup. Although it's just kind of me trying to trying to do what I want to do. You know what I mean? So uh, yeah. yeah, that that's really really cool. So. It's a winding path as yeah. everything is because, you know, nothing's linear in terms of, you know, success or any sort of journey. But when did the UFC come knocking or when did that, was there like an accelerator that happened for you or how did that actually happen to go from, okay, we've well got this local that's transitioning you out of kind of the mom and pop and family business into the next stages. How did that, how did that happen? Yeah. So the, the development from working my coach's show was then getting picked up by Cage Warriors, by, by Graham Boylan, I should say. Okay. Graham Boylan was running, or still does, has a gym in, in North London and others now. But I was, I think where I was different to other people, and this, this is something that other commentators can, can maybe learn from their five piece of boulders to say. I was looking at a, a fight card, and I would identify where there was a, a heavy representation and, and for example his gym was the MMA clinic and they had four or five fighters coming down into this event so it was worth my while visiting that gym speaking to these fighters in in one evening and getting all of that information and then taking that back rather than calling or whatever it might have been it just felt natural but but I was probably going a little bit further I was actually training with these guys I sometimes would call the coach and say look can I join the session and that allowed me to really get to know 
these these other fighters and it's a it is a bit of a brotherhood i feel in fight sports it's the difference between observation and embedding yourself in a real experience right and having yeah, you know yeah. there's a, there's a difference between first person and 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 like first-handed information yeah. i yeah. think yeah. And I think when you're in fight sports as well, and I don't necessarily say that you have to do this, but when you're punching one another in the face or if you're training with one another and using one another's body for your own martial arts journey and the development and evolution of that, you, there needs to be an, an element of respect. Ego needs to be monitored. Absolutely. And just, but also I think when you take to a microphone and you're starting to analyze technique, etc. You got to. It is a. It's an interesting path because you're also a fan, and you're you're talking about things that people are seeing at home. So if something's dreadful. Then yeah. sometimes, as a commentator, you might have to say that. Now, if you've got absolutely no feeling of what that situation's like, then you might go in slightly harder than what you perhaps should do. But if you, yes. if you know a little bit about it and you can respect it firsthand knowledge, then you might be a little bit more careful. And it certainly gave me that. And I think other people in the early days recognized that I was not a million miles away from their, their level sometimes. And it was like, we're almost peers at that point. And then that, that grassroots grounding and that, respect that you're giving them you're getting back because you are in it together it's this new scene as well and everyone's kind of trying to grow and and i'm very grateful that graham saw my efforts not and it wasn't calculated this is what's weird it's i wasn't looking into how to do this there was no 101 abc to sports commentary or mma commentary it just felt natural to call someone up see if I could come down and then speak to people and learn. And I was genuinely interested from my own experience of being in and around MMA and my first gym being on the mat with two doctors. <laughs> I came out of boxing. I had guys that would steal my kit and I'd tell the coaches and they'd say, you've got to ask for it back. If you don't ask for it back, they're going to keep stealing your stuff. 100%. So it was like a show of force, whereas MMA, which you would maybe think if you were looking at like UFC one and it's this cockfighting <laughs> deal, I walk into this gym not knowing anyone, thinking this is this could get gnarly, but actually you've got guys that were adopting scientific methods of nutrition and and weight management that I'd never heard of in boxing. Yes, I mean, and I was I was only like a novice ABA stuff, but even so, we, we were eating pasta and a, and a bit of mint the night before fights. It was, it was I, I remember my kickboxing fights at 13 years old and my coach taking me to the Italian restaurant around the corner and saying, you can have, you can have the sauce on the side and just have a drizzle because all we want is the noodles for right now. Just, uh, you know, a couple hours before the fight just to get those carbs up, you know. But, uh, I wasn't even getting that. You know, it, was, <laughs> it was crazy. So, so now walking into this gym and there was a, a doctor two doctors. One of the doctors was a doctor of sports psychology, the coach, Mark Chen. And another one is a guy who still trains with us, bless him, um, Dr. Ahsoka, who's uh, on the front lines at the moment in A&E departments. Oh, wow. Um, 
yeah, and he's into his 40s, still trying to train whenever he can. Falls asleep on the mats, bless him. He's, I think he's a brown belt jiu-jitsu. But, yeah, it was so strange to see this eclectic mix of people on the mats. In the very first MMA gym that I'd been to, to then jump into others, this Graham's gym, the MMA clinic in London, because it was populated with city folk, there were lawyers, doctors, traders, and then guys from, you know, council estates all on the mat together. It's fascinating. You know, that kind of stuff is fascinating. That's it. And, and it really is the focus of what MMA is all about in terms of the respect element and the discipline element. It really is, you know, it's, it's cohesive when you get into those gyms. Yeah, and it's martial arts, essentially. All right, it's, it's prize fighting sometimes when you get to the upper echelons, but it is still martial arts. You might not always have a dojo and a sensei, and you might be wearing, you know, shorts and, uh, and a rash guard, but, you know, the, the same elements are, are born into it, the genesis of it. So, so yes, I was going along, and then, and then when Graham uh, got involved in Cage Warriors, and that was growing at an incredible rate, he continued to have me along for the ride. Again, super grateful to him Amazing. for that, because he could have had the picking of anyone for that role with Cage Warriors. It was already when he took it over, a very established brand. Dan Hardy and Mike Bisping had, had already been champions for the organization yes. way before I'd come into contact with it. And then I honestly think that the UFC's expansion internationally, it was just, it was great timing. Like I'm very lucky with the timing. Here is a, an interesting spin, however. I actually was sort of, Cage Warriors and I had sort of parted ways in 2013. I, I'd gotten to a point because I wasn't really earning from it. It was sometimes costing me money right. to do the shows because we were doing them in the Middle East. I was away for maybe four days. And you're having and to pay your expenses on that. Is that right? Well, you get, I think I was, you know, getting 25 quid a day per diem. Yeah. Um, they'd pay for your flight and accommodation. And then you'd get a, a small purse for, you know, your services, but it wasn't, it wasn't necessarily, it really certainly wasn't about the money, but um, anyway, that stuff aside, I'd, I'd run out of holiday time and I'd, I was always coming home to a wife and I was only ever eating into the, to the pot. We were missing everything for my passion, you know, my pursuit. And it wasn't just the Cage Warriors stuff and these other local shows I was helping out. Like I was still part of a fight team. So I'm still supporting other, other people from the gym, et cetera. So it's a full, it's, you know, it's full on as well as another job where you're running a business with my dad. It's heavy and it's heavy on the relationship and everything else. So I went back to Cage Warriors and said, look, can you just pay me the, the, the money, the rate that I would get working in construction for the day or close to? Yeah, day rate. It was a, it was a bit of a hard no and we might, we might call you next year. And this was around October. And I was, if I'm honest, I was devastated. I was, uh, I thought all of my efforts over the years would kind of now head in the water. And sure. where do I go from here? Because really cage warriors were the only, apart from Bama, yeah. they were the only ones really active at the time. It right. where I thought was within my reach. I'd never, honestly, I'd never really thought that I was going to be the UFC commentator. Maybe in the final year, maybe around 2012, I started really thinking, 
I'd love it if I could. Wouldn't that be something? Yeah, but I don't think I truly believed it was on it was on the cards. But when the UFC came around for a Manchester show, I'd connected with someone in the UFC office, and I was ended up doing a Q and A for them, and had an appearance on BT Sport. And then the very very next year, beginning of the year, I was calling Gustafsson versus Manu at the O2 Arena. And, and just like that, that. The, yeah, the the there was no, there was n there was no in between ground going from Cage Warriors, which, you know, is is a very very well respected and high level MMA show, but the production Absolutely. element very different. Like I could walk into a Cage Warriors show, and all I really needed to do was a few voiceovers, yeah, and then sit down and just research the fighters. Now I have so much stuff I have to prepare for, for a broadcast and so much. It's like, it's like being a newsreader, the amount of communication you have in your ear. And like the whole time, which some people just can't deal with. Um, well, I would for, imagine for, it's quite off-putting. Like it's yeah. something you have to get used to for sure. I mean, especially yeah. if it's at the level that you're kind of indicating there, always being fed, you know, I mean, what are they feeding you? Are they feeding you stats? Are they feeding you records, last opponents? Like... What are they feeding you? Well, at first, it's and it, and it gets really into the to the detail, and I'm, I'm you know I don't know how much I'm even allowed to divulge of oh, production works. No, 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 it's it's okay. But there's there are certain systems in place, and and what I will say is the UFC was trying to create an like an autonomous group in Europe that were going to help deliver the the internet like the UFC product. Yes, but it was all new people. And they had a well-oiled machine in the US. It was the same group of people that knew and had all the reps, the directors, producers, stage, everyone was well-versed. Now you had a bunch of people that were new to this, this thing and they were UK. And again, yeah. the, the whole, like, like I said, just chalk and cheese, the whole way that sports is done. Culture, and, and production, appearance, all of it. Everything's different. Yeah. And, and of course, I'm the guy at the front end of a lot of these challenges and of course that like it's my own challenges as well as maybe some inherited challenges and we didn't really have the systems in place that allowed me to really commentate on a level playing field to Goldberg and, and, it, and it took a while before I had that system and infrastructure in place and, and we got there and again like and now I really do just deal with the guys in Vegas because it's just easier and and they've also brought that whole kind of uh like what they've done with the Performance Institute, they've done that with the production uh, there as well now, right? So it's almost yeah, like yeah. a central nervous system for every op operation they have going. Yeah, and I don't know how that will work for me because actually they they don't they could do everything from Vegas, and I don't have a visa to work stateside. I don't think we'll get to that. No, but it's good right now. In a, in a way, they can they can do a lot of this stuff. Well, if Dana's, you know, if Dana's Fight Island wants to go ahead and uh, and and all of this yeah. stuff, then then that's the sort of infrastructure you're going to need for that, right? So, yeah, makes sense and and well prepared. But they're always at the forefront of uh, of these sorts of things. They're, uh, you yeah. know, they're they're a groundbreaking organization, full stop. And you know, I'd I'd be surprised if it wasn't them that were leading the charge back to normality and getting sports kind of started again. Um, what I wanted to ask you, because you were obviously, before you came to the UFC, you were in Cage Warriors and, and explained that kind of journey and that part of the journey. 
you were were you calling Connor's fights then? Yeah, yeah. So from, I think I met him in. Uh, I, I'd heard around. I'd heard about him and was checking him out around two thousand and nine. Right. Called called his fight twenty ten against Joe Duffy, who's actually in Dude. the UFC as well. His loss. Yes. Okay. Yes. So I called that fight, and I think he was competing outside of Cage Warriors, but then for the most part, he was a Cage Warriors fighter. So there, until he left Cage Warriors, I think you'll, if you listen to the fights, you'll, uh, I'm sorry to say, you'll be hearing me all over him. <laughs> well, I see, the, um, I, see, I see them on YouTube, but they're usually dubbed over with some uh, yeah. fanboys music and stuff, yes. right? And, uh, yeah. and all of that. Probably not the so. worst thing in the world, if I'm honest. That's, uh, that's, uh, <laughs> but you were there in Dublin for the Brandau fight. And I mean, and I was there for that as well. Yeah. This yeah. is, this is a, a kind of a game changing experience for, you know, UK MMA and, and European MMA, really. I mean, it was, a, do you think that that was a, a significant game changer? I think that was the, the highlight of Irish MMA for sure. But that really was the, the high point. And they don't get me wrong, they're, they're still developing and, and churning out incredible fighters. But because of the way that things have now been constructed, a lot of that's happening with Bellator. So 100%. Ba Bama got, I think Bama pretty much got absorbed by Bellator and the Bama organization almost became a Bellator Europe. And then John Kavanagh's formed some very strong relationships there. And a lot of the fighters from SPG that might have come over to the UFC around now, let's say, Bellator signed them early. Yeah. And so a lot of that talent's gone over there. So people might think that, that they've dropped, like Irish MMA's dropped off in terms of the, the, the pinnacle. Yeah. But I just think that it's been distributed around a few more different promotions, which also speaks to the development of the mixed martial arts landscape. Because there are like, in the Middle East, like Brave FC, for example, put yeah. on great shows. Um, so it's good to see that there's other, there are other opportunities for, for athletes. Yeah, it's great but, that, that there is that opportunity and that scope for athletes to find a home that's not just you know, making the industry a one-trick pony, as it were, you know, and, and obviously the UFC is the pinnacle, but it's great what Bellator is doing, and I, and I love the fact that they're, they're developing younger athletes and giving them a platform, whereas, you know, the UFC basically runs a 500-person roster, 500-fighter roster, and, uh, and you're in it, and, or, or you're not, and, and it's great that there's these other organizations that allow that, you know, that platform for fighters to develop and show and hopefully, you know, aspire to, you know, what the pinnacle of the, of the sport is. Yeah, yeah, it's it is such a unique business, and uh, I, I, it sounds like you've you've uh, you've you've worked it out pretty well. But but a lot of people sometimes underestimate just how unique the the structure is because from my rudimentary understanding of all of this, like most businesses, sports organisations, they grow from the ground up. Yeah, but, but I feel like the UFC has to underpin everything from above. In the UK, for example, we don't have the sport of England recognizing mixed martial arts. The government isn't plowing money into the sport exactly. to, help to help develop. What you have is organizations like the UFC help, helping fund local federations so that the officiating and the rules and the infrastructure generally at an amateur level starts to get developed. 
which can therefore underpin and galvanize the roots for the sport so that it can be stronger and create decent roots towards the UFC um, via other organizations like Cage Warriors, perhaps. Absolutely. And, um, that's what people don't see, like the drug testing and the, yeah, just the health and safety side. You said earlier on, the UFC are pioneering, they're trailblazers, they're not afraid, they're fearless, um, inventive, creative. They've had to be that way from, you know, especially since, well, well I'm, I'm sure from day one, but also since the Fertitta and Dana White era. It's the only major sport to have emerged outside of the traditional major sports that yeah. stuck around, period. Yeah. You know, there's been nothing, there's been no other sport that's, I mean, and it's even more unique because it's not a, it's not a sport in and of, it is now a sport in and of itself, but it galvanized disciplines to make a sport based yeah. on kind of like that Bruce Lee kind of ethos, right? And, and, and bringing yeah. everything together. There's been nothing like it. So they are trailblazers. And, and, I, and I'm super happy that what's going on now is, is they're leading the way and they continue to lead the way. It's, it's a beautiful thing. It's really yeah. special to see. I mean, I've been a fan since 93, you know, and, uh, and, and watch as much as possible. And, and when I was younger, I used to train and fight and do all of that stuff. So I love it. You know, I'm not, I'm definitely not in it as much as you are, obviously, even from a training side. But, you know, it's, um, it's amazing to see. Did you think back then that Connor was going to be what he is? When you not, not when I saw him fight Joe Duffy. I, I knew that he was making a lot of noise because he was kind of, uh, um, I think he was registered as like the boxing coach down at SBG. So he was someone that was helping the other fighters develop. And I was paying close attention to SBG. I thought they were onto something. And then, you know, the Joe Duffy, though, at the same time was someone that is that was a lifelong martial artist. He was on podiums, collecting medals and, and trophies for so long uh, in orthodox martial arts and now had transitioned over. So both of these fighters were sort of making noise, but they're so young in their careers and they were right low down on the card. But it, it became pretty obvious as Connor got back and had a couple more fights in Cage Warriors, that not only was he a very aggressive fighter with a huge knockout percentage, he had this, he had this captivating personality. He was a great orator. And every time you gave him a platform and you turned that volume up a little bit more, he rose to the occasion. And that just kept going and going and going until we see, well, there's no saving for him, you know? See what he's doing right now, politically, back in Ireland. He's helping out. That was going to be my next point to you. Like, do you think he's setting up my, my, my next question to you was, do you think he's actually setting up his next career now? Or do you think he's just doing this because he's got an unlimited platform and he can help. And that's the kind of guy he is. Well, his, his colleague, Paddy Houlihan from SBG is a politician in Ireland. Oh, yeah, that's right. Yeah. So like if he wants, if there's a pathway for him there, then, then he's got a good man to, to speak to. And they've always been very, very close. And I believe they're very close. Um, listen, I honestly feel like Connor is one of those people that has proved to himself, I can turn my hand to anything. I can be successful at anything. And when you get to his level of fame, so many doors are open 
that it's really up to him where he puts his attentions. And that's that's the conversation that I actually would like to, to speak to him about now. Like, how does he manage his time? Yeah. He has so many revenue streams, so many people that want his, his attention. How the hell do you split that up? How do you find time for a training camp when you're running this supposedly billion-dollar um, whiskey brand? And then you've got the Conor McGregor brand. You've got August, the- August McGregor. And- yeah, it's, I mean, it's fascinating because he's also done this in a, an unprecedented amount of time. That's the really, um, really impressive thing is the timeline. Yeah. I look at the Forbes list, and I think this may even have been before he had the Mayweather fight. Yeah. He was side by side with, um, oh, who's that Welsh footballer who played for Madrid? Oh, God, oh uh, Bale. Gareth Bale. Yeah. Yes. So he had apparently the same net worth as Gareth Bale. And Gareth Bale's been a, a top flight pro footballer through the, like, ever since he was probably before he was a teenager. Yeah, 100%. And his whole, like, he had an infrastructure around him to manage his money. He would have had advisors step by step by step. Connor did it in like four or five years. And How came off the dole and did it. Who's advice? And he, he kept his circle tight as well. Connor was very shrewd in that respect. So a lot of those decisions you have to attribute to either some very, very clued up people who he happened to appoint early on and all were close to him anyway, or by himself. By him, yeah, yeah. And, and again, whether, you know, I know that um, he's had his indiscretions, but he's clearly a genius, you know, and in more respects than just one. Well, genius and insanity live next, they're next door neighbors, right? And I mean, right, right. We, we know that by watching uh, The Last Dance and, and revisiting Michael Jordan during the 90s. I don't know if you've been watching that, but it's the same I've, sort of thing. I need to watch it. Oh, I need to watch I mean, it's just, it's, uh, we grew up with it because I grew up over there uh, in Canada, but, you know, the NBA yeah, yeah. Was, our, was our sport, was my sport. Um, and we lived through all of that, but it's even it's even cool to just kind of dig under the surface a little bit and see some of the see some of the candor that Michael has now that he's retired and doesn't really need anybody for anything because he makes more yeah. now off the sneakers than he did ever in basketball anyhow. Um, right. But it's definitely definitely one to check out. Um, yeah. Listen, I don't want to keep you too long, but I do want to talk about two forty nine. Okay. <laughs> but first, I want to find out who who's your favorite fighter, either active or retired, if it's the same person. To watch. Yeah, I, I struggle to answer this question. And the, the reason being is I, I get I get close to these athletes because I get I'm so lucky. I do get to talk to them. And sometimes in Europe, I even get to spend time with them. Like my job, I actually spend probably as much time producing features for the UFC as I do doing studio shows and calling the action. So for the most part, any fighter that has a main event in Europe, I would have been the one to visit them with a crew uh, and produce that feature. Oh, wow. So, yeah, so I do a lot of that stuff. So Darren Till, for example, Jimmy Manuel, Alexander Gustafsson, Volkov. Yeah. Uh, Hermanson. Do you, have an, do you have an old you know, school fighter that was like a personal favorite, like when you were kind of watching before you were in the organization? 
Yeah, I think for, I, I think GSP is someone that stands out, um, and and I'm sure you're going to smile about that one. But he yeah, truly he... was someone to look up to. I I love Conor McGregor's personality, but at the same time, I was a little I was a karate kid. You know, I, I did I did karate for a while. I was bullied at school. I wasn't necessarily the most outgoing, but I might put myself in front of my friends to sort of take a kick in. So he was <laughs> that guy. And, uh, and I loved watching his performances. Anderson Silva had a mystique about him that I that really sort of captivated me. Then you've got guys like Mark Kerr. Um, there's Dan Hardy, you know, when he was coming up. Again, just something, something about him and... and that whole persona was was very special. Um, yeah, I think those guys, I think they're the obvious ones for me. And then more and more just kind of add to it as I get deeper into the sport. Of course. Sakuraba yeah. as well, by the way, when I start geeking out, like Sakuraba was someone who I enjoyed from everything, from the, from the way he would enter an arena to, and everything in between. We could we could probably do an hour just on pride. I think just uh, just right, shooting right. the shit and doing that. So uh, yeah, I, I completely get it. You know, um, I'm even a big fan of Bob Sapp's humongous abnormal ass. You know, and uh, <laughs> you know, I, I love all those days. They were uh, they were they were the they were the closest we came to like Van Damme and the Kumite, right? And kickbox and right, uh, yes. right. So um, I, I love that, and I still put those on Fight Pass and, and check those out all the time. I love them. So let's talk about the upcoming event because the upcoming event is a monster and it's yeah. like uh, like prelims to the top it's just incredible and obviously they mm -hmm. had to do that and they're kicking off like three events but i mean other than other than the main event because i think and i watched it inside the octagon and i think the analysis on there was really really strong um one of the things i wanted to ask you was and I don't know if you covered it because I'm, I'm, I've got embedded on and I was halfway through uh, okay. uh, inside and I'm going to go back to it. Um, do you think Tony cutting weight, preparing for Khabib is going to have any adverse effect on his performance or his ability to take a shot in the fight with Gaethje? Um, well, I actually asked, I, I asked Dan about this and, and he doesn't think so. I think that Tony is, is well, he has rehydrated himself and got himself back to a fully replenished state. From the interviews I've heard, he did everything with his nutritionist and doctor on the other end of the phone from, from distance. And he felt really good and, and he was very positive about that, that whole thing. I think it's, it's settling for fans because he's not going to miss weight. And of course, Tony hasn't been in the octagon anytime soon. Not that we have a, pro like, I don't think Tony is the guy that we worry about when it comes to making weight anyway. However, it's still, it's always the first battle. But like, I, I don't think so because I, I believe that he would have known about this, this fight and therefore wouldn't have gone crazy with wild swings he would have just tempered it and as much as people he's a little bit he's very quirky and maybe a little bit bonkers but that's that's why he's so good he, he sort of he just really is everything that you think everything that he's he says it all fits i don't think any of it's contrived 
but, but make no mistake, he's an absolute expert at this and he's been doing it a long time. And he's obviously with the wrestling background too. There's too much good people around him as well. Yeah, exactly. And he keeps his circle small and he's like, I know he's changed management and stuff because he felt it wasn't really working for him. So Tony's very careful. So I don't think he would do anything to jeopardize his efforts. He, he obviously felt like it was the right thing for him to do. He doesn't really care what any of us think. And any of these out of my mouth right now. <laughs> um, as long as he's done everything scientifically, I don't, I don't think that there should be a problem. And I, I definitely cannot ask you for predictions, right? Well, I just don't. I, I don't like giving them because I, I have to meet with these fighters a lot of the time. Hundred percent understand. Um, uh, but, but one, but I, I'll happily speak to the odds. And yes. you know, we, we have a power puncher who has been stopped. But sorry, that has, that has lost in the octagon. Tony hasn't, and. And I think that the odds of Tony being the favourite are are correct. Yeah. He knew he was fighting in and around this time. He is so fluid in the way that he fights anyway. I don't think he's overly strategic when preparing for specific opponents. Whereas, and I'm not saying that Justin Gaethje handcuffs himself to a certain... Um, formula according to who he's facing I just feel like he's had less time to prepare yeah and he's fighting someone it's difficult to prepare for anyway but I would want more time to really dive into what I might be facing because Tony Ferguson offers some very unique offense that is hard to replicate so I think with all of that in mind I, I can see why Tony would be the favorite yeah 100% and I thought it was I, I found it I found it interesting that that Justin had said that he wouldn't accept a short notice fight with Khabib, but he would with Tony simply because he thinks he has a better chance of landing a one shot knockout. Yeah, really interesting. Yeah, and that and that is interesting. Yeah, because they obviously see something there. And and here's the thing: well, Tony gets genius. Yes, and to and Tony does get here, and I think. That there's such confidence, Gaethje's got such confidence in his power, rightly so. Um, but you're, you're dealing with the, with the Dustin Poirier type here. You know, uh, Tony Ferguson can, and he has taken hits. It's been a while since he's really been engaged in that, that heavy kind of warfare as well. And I, and I don't really know the, the biology of it, but I feel like someone who wasn't sparring heavily which he has confessed to not really doing so before his recent fights yes he did a little bit for this one but he's not a guy that's continually getting his bell rung and therefore having a weakened state and you know an ability to take a, a heavy shot or multiple heavy shots but justin gaethje has a different kind of power for sure yeah that's right that's right so I'm not going to ask you to break down the whole entire card because you got a job for that, and uh, and and that's not that's that's, <laughs> that's not a, what that's kind a, of time I want to take. But if there's one fight either on the main card or on the prelims, and I've had a look at them, what do you think? I mean, other than the main event, because the main event, if it goes the way it's supposed to, is just going to be a berserker and it's going to be a bloodbath like the rest of Tony's fights are. What's the one fight on the card that is 
interesting, under the radar, people should definitely watch out for because I think this is going to be one of the most viewed cards ever. Um, what should people look out for? What's the one nugget that they should definitely tune in for, in your opinion? Well, I think definitely it's got to be Calvin Cater versus Jeremy Stevens. That's that's the one for me that... Yeah, me too. Is it flying under the radar? Perhaps. But that's maybe because they're both... They're guys that, that don't really do too much. They're not trash talkers. And there's so, I would imagine there's so much so, uh, mutual respect between the two camps and the individuals. They both know they're in for a war. Oh, no doubt. Be brutal. And, oh, for sure. Um, I got to commentate uh, Calvin Cater's fight with uh, Zabis. And oh. it, was a, it was a real privilege to be there octagon side to spend time with him and his team they're a great team over in boston i really enjoyed their company and such um, a high Rob level of skill on both of those fellas yeah and, and that's the thing when you really get down to the nitty-gritty of of striking i i love calvin's body work how how he sets it up with his hands he's got a very very pretty boxing style very long as well he can he yeah. can get along with that which I really like. Yeah, I, I actually saw, I think it was Brendan Dorman broke down a particular technique that Calvin did, and I was sharing it in the WhatsApp group for the fight team that I belong to because I feel like there's certain fighters that you should be following and do techniques a certain way, and Calvin Cater's hands is something that a lot of the guys in my gym, I think, should, would definitely benefit from, from uh, mimicking or trying to emulating, I should say. So him, but Jeremy Stevens, we know he's such a veteran. He's been around for so long. You know what he offers. And it's, you know, he's a highlight reel fighter. He's a wild man. But, but again, not, not to this, he takes risks. But at the same time, he's very, very highly skilled. A complex fighter to face, I would imagine. It's like a calculated um, chaos, right? Yeah, yeah. I, I also would like to give mention, however, to Fazente Luque uh, versus the hybrid as well, because like those guys are crazy. Nico Price has done some great work since he's come to the UFC. Like the guy will have you in his guard and knock you out with shots off of his back. Uh, those hammer just, fists, right? Yeah. Vicente Luque is one of the most humble, nicest <laughs> prize fighters you're likely to meet. He really? speaks multiple languages. I think he will be a, a, an asset to our sport when he decides to hang up the gloves or, or even now. He, he could do really great work for um, whoever the broadcast partners are in Latin America, be it right. talking Portuguese or Spanish. But he is a fantastic technician under Henry Hooft, um, also out of his team in, um, in, in Brazil as well. But he's, he trains hard with, with those guys down at Hard Knocks or Sanford MMA, as it's now called. But, but Nico Price is a, is a man to watch. There's something very special about the way he does his work. He, he is what he says on the tin. Yes. And that will be violent. That will oh. be a violent conflict. I couldn't agree more. I couldn't agree more. Um, <clears throat> listen, there's one way I always end my conversations, John, and I don't know how much American television you've ever watched. Um, 
but there used to be a show on television called Inside the Actor's Studio. It was where okay. it was it was from New York University and the acting school within New York University and the and the teacher there used to have famous actors on to talk to the students. And he used to run a survey, a questionnaire, a quick fire questionnaire. And I, I, I love that show so much that I always wanted to bring it into my conversations whenever I had them with interesting people. So if you're up for it, it's 10 quick questions. They're not controversial. Right, hey, yeah. So first thing that comes to mind, and I'll just keep rolling through the questions and we'll end like that. What is your favorite word? Exquisite. What is your least favorite word? No. <laughs> Creatively, spiritually, or emotionally, what turns you on? Storytelling. What turns you off? Dishonesty. What's your favorite curse word? Um, hmm. Uh, I don't really. I've got to see. If you don't I want don't to get say to it, you can. You can say it begins with if you like <laughs> i don't get to exercise curse words too much in my job you see no i know so I outside of that so i'm a i'm a i'm a terrible potty mouth um i will uh, I, I will drop the f-bomb frequently at home if my daughter of course is not in the room <laughs> what sound or noise do you love my daughter's voice what sound or noise do you hate? Um, I, uh, I, was, I could be funny here. Or I could be serious. So I, I have, so weirdly, I have uh, tinnitus and inner ear problems. So certain frequencies oh, wow. actually make me feel like quite sick. Ew. Yeah, so I so I often wear um, like ear defenders and, and things of that nature. But otherwise, I think uh, there's this, uh, Katie Hopkins, like the sound of her voice. <laughs> <makes me look. laughs> Other than what you're doing right now, what job would you love to give a go? I guess some sort of uh, youth worker of some description. And what job could you absolutely not do? Or wouldn't want to do? Hmm. Uh, my, our daughter had to have um, open heart surgery last year. And I, I couldn't work in in and around that field 
they are truly special people in so many ways. And I just don't think emotionally I could, I don't think that I could clean the ward, let alone even get to a dizzy height of being a surgeon. So yeah, the, the, those pediatrics is just different. Final question. If heaven exists, what would you like to hear God say when you arrive at the pearly gates? Uh, uh, hello, John. Welcome in. Because <laughs> then he would have known my name, which would have made me feel good, and he's welcoming me to his to his little collective beyond the gate. So, uh, so, so that would be nice. Nice, beautiful. Listen, I really, really appreciate your time. Um, I'll be uh, sure to watch the rest of um, Inside the Octagon now and uh, and get the rest of the breakdown but i really appreciate your time and um thank you for sitting down with me thank you for uh taking the time and i'm glad you're staying safe um during all the quarantine it's um it's been a real pleasure thank you very much may i may i do do a quick plug absolutely thank you because i'm i'm kind of relaunching everything at the moment i do have a youtube channel right john gooden uk John Gooden UK is all of my socials as well, but I've been, I do create like my own analysis stuff, some thoughts, and I do a, a like physical breakdown of the technique with my coach, but I am about to a new podcast series, which I'm currently working on. I've had a number of conversations already. It's called For the Love Of, and it's something that will be coming out on that channel and beyond. I'm very excited talking about probably different subject matters to what people might immediately assume from certain guests. So that's coming soon. I'm excited about it. And uh, yeah, look out for it on the John Gooden UK channels. Fantastic. Fantastic. And, uh, and we'll include the links uh, to those in the show notes as well. Um, So I'm happy to happy to put them in there as well. So thank you. um, Thank you so much, John. I really appreciate your time and uh, take care of yourself. Yeah. 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 You too.